This episode is sponsored by Fawn's Music. If you listen to our show, you know that my house is party central. That's how Scott and I first started Old Timey Crimey at one of my parties. So trust me when I say I know the perils of party planning. And nothing can bring down the vibe faster than a bad music selection. Fawn's Music has you covered. The Fawn's Coaster lets any guest add their music to your Spotify playlist so the music matches the vibe. Dance party? Your friends can add their favorite beats. Chill summer barbecue? Everyone can add the latest summer jams to set the mood. We got to try out the coaster and now this is going to be a staple of all my parties. It's a really cool piece of technology that will make all my get-togethers unique. So share the love of music and get $5 off with our special code OLDTIMEY at fonzmusic.com. That's code OLDTIMEY at fonzmusic.com. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I am suffering from a migraine of incredible proportions. I think I used to be a human named Scott. It's actually all my puns that did this, probably. It's definitely the puns, and I am Amber. (laughs) and we are back with your weekly dose of historical true crime and boy is it ever gonna get super historical here this is a little bit uh i think a little bit different of an episode and it's gonna be so fun in uh in a get your head chopped off kind of way so before we uh get to the good stuff, there is some other good stuff to talk about. And that is everything going on over at the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash old timey crimey. And if you are not a patron, you really should think about it and then actually do it. Because at the five dollar level, you get access to our old tiny crimies, as we call them, which are kind of our weekly mini-sodes, as well as a monthly extra extra, which is our big monthly bonus episode, where we have a little fun and do a little something different than what we usually would. For the month of March, we did Unsolved Murders. So, mmm, <laughs> Tasty Unsolved Murders. Tasty, tasty. And not only do you get each week's, you get the, our entire back catalog, of which there are well over 60 old tiny crimies and several extra extras as well. So there is a lot there for you to enjoy, for you to binge on, and you really should think about doing it. You also get a shout out at the end of the show. And I've been thinking about something. Uh, patrons, if you want to, and uh, future patrons, if you, you do, Send uh, send us on, on Patreon your birthday, and on your birthday, we'll give you a little shout-out if you want. Or, you know, the week of your birthday. It, it, I can't guarantee it'll be on. It could be a birthday week. You celebrate birthday weeks. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Birthday weeks. So uh, if you want to do that, uh, you'll get an extra shout-out if you're already a patron. And if you join us on the Patreon, uh, send us a message with your, with your birthday, and we'll, we'll give you a little birthday shout-out whenever it's your birthday. So I just thought of that as a little something extra we can do because we love our patrons so much. 
What else do we love, guys? We love people getting their heads chopped off. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> See, in my head, I was still on like birthday blowjobs, and I was trying to avoid saying it. And then as soon as you said head, it just like. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's a lot of conflicted images uh, going on there. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to be talking about. All right, we're going to be talking about Anatole de Blair, but. Uh, I started started researching him, and I don't know if this happened with you guys, because we don't collaborate on our research. We do it all independently. But I ended up going back in time and doing a lot on his family, because this was a thing. Scott, you know it. It was your family, too. Mm-hmm. The executioner was one of those trades that's passed down from father to son, whether the son liked it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think my family, my family was, was French as well as Anatole's, but I'm thinking my family kind of got out of the trade about a hundred years before Anatole's got into it. Mm, That makes a lot of sense because this is, that was still during the time when the name and the trade went together. So the, the mort, you know, right. Think of it, think of it this way. The French revolution, my family kind of got out of town. (laughs) <laughs> can't run <laughs> run now so we're actually going to start with anatole de blair's grandfather this was uh joseph anton de blair he was born in 1789 which coincidentally was the same year that dr joseph ignace guillotine proposed that all executions should be performed by guillotine so a little synchronicity there um, the guillotine actually was not the first of its kind. It's so, sort of so super famous that we associate it with the French. But guillotine-like machines were known to be used in Yorkshire from 1286 to 1650. I don't know why it isn't just a big anvil that crushes the head. Well, it's said to be kind of the most humane method of execution. I don't um, know. Keeping a severed human head alive for 15 seconds to 90 seconds doesn't seem as humane as just smashing it with an anvil in a hilarious Gallagher-like display. Well, some of the research that I came upon sort of speculated that maybe it was just a couple seconds, but we'll get into that. Um, also, another one in Edinburgh, Scotland, based on that first one, uh, it was used from 1556 to 1710, and of course, we have to name the things that we use to perform government-sponsored murder, and um, they called it the maiden. I am. Uh, I'm working on a new type of guillotine myself. It's kind of a cross between the standard guillotine and the slap chop from Vince, where it's <laughs> like give it like three smacks, and the head's just diced to bejesus. The world's first 3D printed guillotine. Mm-hmm. The slap chop. This, the, the slap chop guillotine. And I'm going to have no, Vince be the first person executed by it. <laughs> <laughs> As is appropriate. Now, it's also possible that guillotine-like setups were used in Nuremberg in the 1500s and Milan in the 1700s. So we can see a lot of proliferation of this particular method long before we come to associate it. Um, guillotine's... Per- I have no idea. His proposal was put into place in 1792. Prior to that, executions for your average Joe in France were done by hanging, good old-fashioned stake burning, or the wheel upon which you would be crushed. 
the idea was that the guillotine would both make the execution more humane than those methods. And for some reason, it also would then be able to be applied to the nobility. I don't know why you can't hang a noble person or burn them at the stake or crush them on the wheel, but you can chop off their head. What's the difference? I don't know. It's all death. I, I, I need to find out why. Just for no real reason. I know. We do, we do have a lot of, uh, but why? And then we need to answer that question. Right. But do they maybe not poop themselves if their head's chopped off real fast? M- maybe. 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 Now think of it this way. Maybe it kind of instills if like beheadings are are the realm of royalty, maybe it kind of instills like a psychological fear in the common person. Hey, this is a person who wouldn't be able to be killed by hanging. They wouldn't be maybe. able to be broken on the wheel. No, you have to go to an extreme to kill a royal because they're chosen by God. The only way you're gonna we're gonna have to stake their heart too after they're decapitated and make sure <laughs> the head is buried sense. at least five miles away from the body. That's entirely possible. That could be the reason. So, uh, Joseph Dublair, uh, one site actually calls him Le Grognard en le Monde, which translates to the German Grump. <laughs> I know. So much nicer though. I know. Um, his family had been executioners in Württemberg, Germany, since almost a hundred years before he was even born. So in the sixteen, the late sixteen hundreds. So he was probably like the fourth or fifth generation of of executioners in his family. He didn't start out that way. Um, he moved to France to a region of Burgundy. And that was in his 20s. He started up a coffee house. He got married. He was just living his life. And then, you know, you you start up a coffee house, which was actually like coffee house slash tavern, and you get some regulars. Well, one of his regulars was, of course, the local executioner who found out that Joseph's family had some history there. And eventually he invited Joseph to be his assistant. So he ended up in the family business after all. They always get you in the end, don't they? Mm Mm-hmm. And this was really a tough gig. Um, executioner families tended to do what, you know, they, they, they did just like royalty did. Lots of marrying between them. Those, those family trees, that's just a big fat tangle. Um, and then kept on passing the torch down the line. But they sometimes had to use aliases because obviously the executioner might not be the most popular person in town. <laughs> And even with the aliases, they would still end up getting run out of the neighborhood sometimes. But all jobs have a few perks. So this one, uh, from the Middle Ages onward, they got to basically treat the local market like their own garden and pick whatever they wanted for free. So that's kind of a nice deal. I'd cut a, I'd cut a dude's head off for that. Going to Walmart, I mean, be able to grab whatever I want, leave without paying. That's worth a human life. But oh, it's yeah, also no, totally. You have no idea how high my grocery bill is. Mm-hmm. It's it's a French market, and they are places of absolute wonder. Just piles and piles of different kinds and colors of olives and beautiful, beautiful fruits and every. Oh my god, I I, I crave French markets. <laughs> I love French markets. They're so freaking wonderful. So yeah, I, I think you're forgetting about. I think you're forgetting about the time because you know people were going potty out the window. That is true, but hey, that's that's good fertilizer for all those 
those olives and stuff. <laughs> Make sure you wash it thoroughly when you get home. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> enjoy your food poisoning. So uh, Joseph ended up being sort of what they, they considered a wandering executioner, which was generally typical uh, at the time. He moved around quite a bit. He ended up in a bunch of French towns whose names I am about to butcher. He ended up in Saint, in Evreux, in Gap. The Gap. I don't even know. Do you pronounce that P? I don't know. It's French. In Sonflower and in Ron. I can never pronounce that one. R-E-N-N-E-S. So uh, in 1823, uh, Joseph's firstborn son was born, and that was Louis-Antoine Stanislas de Bleu. And he was named after his dad's boss, his his executioner boss in Dijon, where they had moved to at that point. So get get the full honor of being named after, you know, another executioner, and you pretty much are fated from birth. So, moving on to Louis de Bleu. De, uh, I think I'm saying that right. So, he started... I've been saying Dibbler, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> in my head, while I was researching, I was pronouncing it Dibbler. And then I looked up some videos on it, and there's actually a uh, Anatole de, de Blair, who we'll be talking about later, there's actually footage of him in a newsreel That'll be in the sources on, on YouTube if you want to look at that. I even did it to the timestamp so you don't have to sit through 25 minutes like I did. And um, so, uh, yeah, that showed up and, and they were pronouncing it to Blair. So I went with that because I was basically like, I don't know how to pronounce it. And I don't want to sound um, as stupid as I do in my head. So, so Louis uh, started helping his dad, Joseph, out at the guillotine fairly young he was assistant executioner in Algeria starting in 1853 and then married his boss's daughter. There it is, marrying into the executioner line in 1858. They had five children and two survived. He did actually try to learn another trade. He learned cabinet making, but of course, he ended up getting pulled into the family business. Thing was, some said he wasn't very good at it, which there's nothing worse than a bad executioner. I, the only thing I can think of, the like, uh, like a, a bad birthing, uh, like a bad birth nurse. <laughs> oh no! And she's like juggling the twins that just popped out, and one slips and falls, and she's like trying to grab the second one. And she sl- steps on the first one that's on the floor and slips and just spikes the second one. Just, yeah, that might be a little worse, but bad executioner is pretty bad. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty bad. The papers called him too slow, and that is not what you want the guy manning the lever, which makes the sharp blade come down on your neck, to be. You want that to be speedy that just let's get it over with i like to think that like they the really disgusting criminals they just went let's let's let this dude have it this is gonna be funny (laughs) watch this (laughs) yeah so he ended up taking over for his dad joseph in 1863 as executioner in Rome, and the same year his son anatole was born on november 29th 1863 He's probably uh, he did, just trying to pop him out so he can have a reprieve. 
Yeah, right? That seems to be the motivation there. He's not loving his life. Yeah, all the pictures I found of Anatole, he has this wide-eyed stare. Like, he's just got the screams of 299 men in his ears at all times. But he's been forced to smile. Yeah. So, Louis uh, was the executioner in Rouen for uh, about eight years until 1871. And that's when they changed the law. Uh, Up until that point, uh, they would have sort of either regional executioners for each region or even each court. But they decided that they would have one executioner for all of France. And I listened to the Google Translate of this a million times, and I'm still going to make it sound horrible. The executor en chef des arrêts criminels or the Chief Executor of Criminal Judgment. So this was applicable across France except in select locations. How did I just make an executioner sound like an ad? I don't know. But You did, though. So good job. <laughs> yeah. We accept PayPal, Venmo, and Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. And meth. <laughs> so it is Johnstown. So, yeah, they basically a couple colonies and a a couple other locations. This didn't apply there. But otherwise, it was all of France. So this chief executioner had a full team underneath him. There would be two first-class assistants and three second-class assistants. And this team would travel the country performing executions. Just go from, you know, region to region, court to court, wherever they're needed. So, and each individual execution was performed by the chief executioner. So he's always involved. And then you would have one first class assistant and two second class assistants. So probably rotated among them or whoever was favored either got to be part of the execution or didn't, depending on what was preferable. I don't know. <laughs> on the one hand, you get more experience, but on the other end, you get more experience. Mm-hmm. So. First of the executor en chef des arrêts criminels, if I say it really fast, maybe it won't sound stupid, was Jean-Francois Heidenreich. He was from another executioner family and had been the executioner in Paris. So because of this new change in the law, in January of that year, Louis lost his position. But on July 24th, Heidenreich picked up Louis as a second-class assistant. So things looked a little, again, it can go either way. For Louis, things either looked a little bleak because he didn't have a job, or they looked a little less bleak because he wasn't cutting people's heads off all the time. So for a little while, for about six months until July when he got picked up. And Heidenreich died the very next year. So the next chief executioner was Nicholas Rock, And he assigned Louis de Blair as a first-class assistant with him. So uh, Louis got a little bit of a promotion. So seven years later, 1879, Rock died. And that was the big moment for Louis de Blair. He became the executioner en chef and would slowly become known as Monsieur de Paris. So... Basically, Sir of Paris was his title as the the chief executioner for all of France. One fun thing is he usually wore a top hat to his executions, so getting fancy. Like I found, I found more than one photo of him, and I mean, this dude was kind of made famous because of the camera. But it was like the entire team wore a top hat. 
Yeah, and yeah, yeah. There, there's like one photo I found of him. It's like four. It's him, three of his assistants, and somebody in the guillotine facing downward, which in my opinion is the wrong way to face the person. You want them facing upward so they see that blade coming down. <laughs> no, just squirt. Oh, that's true. Uh. That's true. But and once, you know, once again, I think that's the funny part. Well, you know, if, if anybody was fainting in these events, it was definitely not because of the top hats, as we talked about in uh, pre-Victorian England in a couple episodes ago. So, the, these are some... You know what? It's dress for the job you want, not the job you have. I'm telling you what. I mean, these are some sharp-dressed men. ZZ Top would be proud of these executioners. Yeah. Like, literally, <laughs> it fits the lines of the song. Top coat, top hat, wallet fat. I see all these things. Yeah, yeah, they're all present. So Louis, uh, his first execution as chief executioner was Pierre Leprod, who had murdered both his grandmother and his parents. And the story of this, there were lots of stories of Louis's tenure as the chief executioner. And so we'll go, we'll go through of them. And, and kind of, you know, maybe discuss whether they're possible or not. But it was uh, his, it, there was a big struggle between condemned man and executioner. And it ends up becoming sort of a brawl in which Louis ends up smacking the guy's head off the ground. So, and they were kind of like, this is not how the job is supposed to be done. And again, he was just not great at it. Parisians in general thought he was too slow and also... Clumsy, again, another word you don't want applied. That These are bad adjectives all around. They are, but you know what? At least he's not swinging an axe because we would yes. have had like a Tower of London repeat if he was. So I, I think it's for the best that it's the guillotine at least. Yeah, um, that is true. It's pretty much a no muss, no fuss. You know, the blade's going to strike the same place every time. Yeah, like so how are you bad at like pulling a cord or... A lever, or whatever the hell it is. I don't know. I've never gotten to do one yet. I well, like how other... she throws the yet in there. <laughs> yeah. There were other aspects, like the, the executioner would be the one tying up the criminal. And he tended to do that rather clumsily so that they could easily get out. Um, that's probably how Pierre Laprade was able to get into a brawl with him because he wasn't properly tied up. I mean, if you're taking people to their death, uh, you really want to make sure they're tied up good because uh, people tend to fight that for some reason. Sometimes, yeah. I don't know. So, Not this yeah, new generation of, different... of kids. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. So, so yeah. Um, one of his more memorable executions happened uh, when he executed a young couple, Henri and Georgette Thomas. Uh, they were 25 and 30, res uh, respectively, they had murdered Georgette's mother by burning her to death on the family farm with some assistance from Georgette's brothers. Now, the brothers ended up getting life sentences, but obviously Henri and Georgette, they got the death sentence. So the reason behind this murder was that Henri and Georgette had been having uh, bad harvests and then some other bad luck. They had lost some hay, their horses got sick, their children got sick, and their chickens got sick. And so they um, thought Georgette's mother must be a witch, as is obvious to all of us, right? The woman, she's a witch. Yeah, pretty much yeah. so. The vagina yeah, is where spells are kept. 
oh, I could go in so many different directions with that that I just have decided not to go. So <laughs> <laughs> staying on that straight and narrow path here. So yeah, uh, Henri and Georgette toss some oil and holy water um, on uh, Georgette's mother, shoved her into the fireplace, and lit her up. They just lit that witch up. <laughs> so, and wonderfully enough, this is some just really fantastic parenting here. Uh, there are three children. We're all witnesses to this. Saw the whole thing happen? Yes. Their eight-year-old daughter ended up being the star witness in the court case. Describing the whole thing, how her parents lit grandma on fire. <laughs> hmm. It's it's pretty awful. Now, the, the thing... The corn's well, not growing. Kill grandma. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So... Female executions were very rare, and husband and wife executions were even rarer. So this was a big deal. 2,000 people came to watch, and boy, did they get a show. Georgette was looking for uh, any distraction at all that could maybe delay or stop this altogether. And, well... Ladies out there, you know that you have uh, two distractions, uh, right, on your chest. So uh, Georgette decided to bear her distractions to the crowd and just basically stripped down. Well, sexecution. <laughs> yes. So they had to grab her, and then she proceeded to struggle the whole way to the guillotine. There's actually a lovely illustration of this available that um, sadly doesn't have uh, too many uh, boobs just flying in the wind. Um, So, yeah. Pay for a show and a show they got. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Louis, however hated this he hated the spectacle of it he hated the stress and he said he would never execute another woman again and actually georgette was the last woman publicly executed in france and as far as guillotines altogether once they became private um there was no more guillotining of women in france until 1941 so at least her little strip show managed to gain women a pass for 54 years as far as getting their heads chopped off and women can't Thanks live for with the tits. you can't live with them <laughs> end of sentence and that ladies and gentlemen is the power of boobs they can they can instill life in the condemned yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> now, uh, Louis' son, Anatole, later told a story about Louis. How, uh, okay, so this is what we were talking about as far as the life and everything, uh, life after guillotining. This story goes that about one year into Louis' tenure as chief executioner, he helped out with an experiment that a professor and a doctor were performing to see if the guillotine was painless. The, I'm going to simplify this a little bit, but it's already pretty simple the way they go about this. Uh, they take a guillotined criminal's head and set it up with a dog. And they set the dog's blood to be pumped into the guillotined criminal's head. Because science! 
because science. Oh, man. So uh, Anatole actually related uh, his father's perceptions of this whole experiment. Quote, the white dead face became ruddy. Its expression cleared as if awaking. The eyes opened with a look of astonishment. The lips trembled as if trying to speak. During two seconds, said my father, that brain thought. Creepy. <laughs> yes. The professor then turned His last to... words, woof, woof. <laughs> the professor then turned to de Blair and said, de Blair, be gentle and respectful with your heads. When the knife has done its work, when they roll in the sawdust, those heads hear the roar of the dog. They perceive their bodies lying in the basket. They see the guillotine and the light of day. Mm. So, God, that gives me the fucking a- creeps. It's just just the thought of like like the intense pain around the neck and not having not having like the air from your lungs to scream and fucking hell that gives me the creeps. It is very much like a nightmare. And yes, but this is okay. So capitalpunishmentuk.org has a little discussion of guillotining from our modern actual scientific perspective. The person guillotined becomes unconscious very quickly and dies from shock and anoxia due to hemorrhage and loss of blood pressure within less than 60 seconds. It has often been reported that the eyes and mouths of people beheaded have shown signs of movement. It has been calculated that the human brain has enough oxygen stored for metabolism to persist about seven seconds after the supply is cut off. As in hanging, the heart continues to beat for some time after decapitation. Various experiments have been made on guillotined heads and generally seem to show that little consciousness remains after two to five seconds of separation from the body, although some have concluded that the head retains feeling for much longer. So at least we'll go with the two to five seconds. That's very short. That's one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, gone at the most. I bet that lasts a fucking eternity. Right? Yeah, it Time can slow down when your head's been cut off and you're staring at the sky. Yeah. But you know what? They're going to hell anyway, so that's probably <laughs> the best five seconds they're going to see for a long time. If hell exists and they are rightfully convicted and not wrongfully convicted. So there's some. There's a couple of ifs in that <laughs> statement. A couple of asterisks there. So, so uh, Louis de Blair actually didn't speak publicly about his thoughts on the death penalty. He really was just a pretty quiet dude in general. He worked to keep his job out of his private life. Uh, He was, quote, a modest, retiring little man with soft, dreamy blue eyes, end quote. That's a weird way to describe a man who cuts people's head off for a living. Dreamy. He's dreamy. He's oh so dreamy. His son described him as timid and self-effacing. His hobbies included card playing, fishing, and violin. And, you know, a little bit of after-hours volleyball with the heads. No, just kidding. I'm not <laughs> Spike! <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you're playing the volleyball with the human head, it's important to hold by the chin when serving. You don't want those teeth going into your hand. <laughs> Obviously, I was just kidding with that. It's France. It would be soccer. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And good shoes. Oh. For the same teeth reason. Don't want to play that barefoot shit. Yeah. It was said that he frequented a, a particular cafe where they, they knew who he was and what he did, 
but they were very discreet and cool about it. They didn't make him feel like a horrible person or a freak or anything like that. The only thing was, and he was fine with this, he understood, the waiters refused to ever shake his hand. Yeah, I get that too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Another little detail, he carried an umbrella around all the time, not necessarily because of rain, but because one leg was shorter than the other, so he used it as a cane, sort of. So There are some ridiculous stories about him that are very likely not true, like the ring. There's a story that he had a ring made out of the iron extracted from the blood of those he executed. Jesus Christ. People come up with any kind of bullshit, won't they? Like, why not, like, the fillings of their teeth? <laughs> right? Right? Oh, Doesn't that make, make more it... sense? It does. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. But what were, what were Dennis filling people's teeth with in the 1800s? <laughs> Probably horse dung. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so. And there were other stories that he had a sort of evil eye that he could use to hypnotize some of his uh, subjects, victims, whatever you want to call them. No, I've seen the, I've seen the photos. That I agree with. Well, I mean, he could have mesmerizing eyes without them actually having any power. You know, they can be sort of captivating, but not necessarily lure you to your death by sharp blade on your neck. <laughs> I... Man, if I would get if I would get the right criminal who would work with me, I would just sell that shit. I would go out there in my top hat and go, "Come to me," waving my fingers, just walking <laughs> backwards, beckoning him, and like, "Oh, just groan a little bit while you're out there. It'll be funny." <laughs> Come on, <laughs> gotta leave him with a smile, Georges. <laughs> oh, he's leaving him smiling. So, and he did seem to gain some skill. In his career, a supposed witness to one of his executions uh, reviewed him as follows. De Blair was very skillful, and his executions were free from annoying and unpleasant features. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Um, you yeah. know what? The one thing I demand whenever I go see an, a live execution where a man's head is severed from his body by a 500-pound blade, I don't want it to be unpleasant. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> you want to leave there with the feeling of, oh, oh that was that quite was, pleasant, actually. quite pleasant. I believe I'll go pick flowers in a field and frolic with baby animals now. <laughs> and not As cry myself does. to sleep every night for the rest of my life. So the thing is about that quote and then the other ridiculous stories I mentioned about the ring, the evil eye... Um, source Chris Woodyard of, uh, it's, it's in the sources, but it's the, the Haunted Ohio Books website, said that there was no real corroboration of any of this um, beyond one particular um, American obituary for Louis. Um, the names in there couldn't be traced to any actual incidents in France. There really wasn't any way of, of connecting most of the stuff in that article to reality. So it might've just been a bunch of stories spun from whole cloth with the, the newspapers did that all the time back then. They really did. It was ridiculous. So, and another story, supposedly his wife attended some executions dressed as a man and hid in a tall basket that they had installed next to the guillotine just for that purpose. For the really long heads. <laughs> What's that basket for? Nothing, nothing. There's nothing in there. 
his daughter, what do you know, married an executioner from one of the French colonies. That was one of the ones that was exempt from the, you know, general one executioner for all of France rule. Now, are these like arranged marriages? That's the only thing that makes sense to me is that like all the executioners has to have to stay with executioner families. Like it's it's really weird. Now, I would say there's probably some element of arrangement in a lot of them, but also think about the fact that it's very possible that the only person who can understand you is somebody who has grown up in this very singular occupation with this in their household and their life. I guess, but like, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm a rebel. I'd be like, you know what? Fuck y'all. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go marry a baker. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't want my kids to grow up and sever heads unless they want to. So, like, I'm not going to force that on them. I'm going to marry a baker. (laughs) I want fluffy bread, not severed heads. Yeah. T shirt. T shirt. (laughs) So. So yeah, now the thing is that again, the executioner life, it's not an easy one. He told his son, I have been refused in so many hotels. My ears have heard so many in- insults. Anatole, I give this counsel to you and all future executioners. Do not have an original physiognomy. Like, you know, your face and style and everything. Change your style of dress constantly. My invariable black frock suit and high silk hat have spelled disaster for me. So that that dressing up didn't really seem to help. See, that's whenever, why whenever I execute people, shorts and a t-shirt and sandals. That's also every other day. So yeah. you're, you're yeah. yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. You know, true crime is great. Well, Talking about true crime is great. True crime is actually pretty awful. Speak for yourself. Well, man cannot live on true crime alone. Again, speak for yourself. (laughs) So So when you need a break from true crime, why not play some Best Fiends? This free-to-play online game is tons of fun and has oodles of colorful, fun characters. Axolotls truly are nature's sexiest amphibians. They are. (laughs) Now it's time for the level check. All right, where are we, guys? I am at level 942. You can touch me if you want to. Good (laughs) job. I am up to 1592. Ooh, I am at 3143. I crossed the 3000 barrier. Life is different over here. Oh, I bet. It's all shiny and colorful. It just looks like a whole bunch of crayons and nice music. <laughs> Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now, usually it seemed that the guillotine was a pretty generally clean method for those operating it. You're able to, to stand at, you know, at some remove. You're, you're not getting your hands dirty. You're not getting, you know, gen- dirty in general. But there was an accident of some kind in 1897 when an assistant of Louis got clumsy and the blood ended up just spurting right onto Louis, right in his face and all over him. 
that. It's the executioner version of a pie fight. Yes, yes, it is. Um, that ended up having a pretty severe effect on him psychologically. He started having this severe reaction to the sight of blood. He would get this intense anxiety. His hands would shake. He saw blood on his hands all the time when it wasn't there, was washing his hands constantly. This is called a hematophobia, a fear of blood, which not a great thing to have to suffer as an executioner. And we can recognize a lot of these symptoms as anxiety and some obsessive compulsive stuff. I mean, not to diagnose after death, but it's pretty freaking obvious. That is a terrible thing to develop as an executioner is yeah. a fear of blood. <laughs> yeah. That's the baker suddenly being afraid of flour. Ah! <laughs> what is this powdery stuff that's all over my hands? I must wash them. Get it off! Get it off! Get it off! So Fucking hell! He decided uh, he couldn't really do this anymore, especially with those shaky hands. I get it. Uh, I have the shaky hands, too. It's both anxiety and tremors, like actual physical, you know, effects. So his last execution was December 31st, 1898. Joseph Volchet, the French Ripper. Ooh, Ripper. Yes. Ripper. Ripper. Ripper, Francois. <laughs> you are man, <laughs> prostate. <laughs> So actually, he tended to go for uh, young men and women who were shepherding general and like farm hands and stuff like that. And he, he was very, very much active in the countryside. He had murdered definitely 11 people, possibly 15 total. He would uh, sexually assault his victims, stab them to death, sexually assault them again, do some mutilation... And then supposedly uh, go full vampire. So that is not the correct order of those things. No, it is not. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and he definitely didn't have hematophobia. So there's that at least. Well, she had. So, uh, so yes, Louis de Blair retired in 1898 and afterwards lived as Monsieur Moreau. And his son, Anatole took over on January 1st, 1899. So there were stories that Louis had performed 502 executions in his 19 years as head executioner, but the more likely number is 154, which comes out to about eight per year. But it's possible, remember he had been a second assistant, first assistant, all of that, uh, it's possible that he took part in as assistant anywhere from 500 to 1,000. So, and some of those could even just be observing, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's some, some trauma inflicted even from just watching it as much as uh, participating. So, at least some. He died at age 81 in 1904 in Paris in the company of his family. Loser. The real, way, <laughs> real way to die is covered in blood in the, in the presence of prostitutes. <laughs> so, and I'm working my way towards that. That's my life goal. It's, it's good to have goals? Yeah, it is. Literally what I was just thinking is mm -hmm. it's good to have goals. You should always have a goal. <laughs> yes. You, you said that very differently than I said it. I had a question mark at the end of it. Maybe several. Amber's you had like, an exclamation point. <laughs> Amber's like, that's a damn good idea. How many prostitutes can we get? No, like I... I 
I already have my own plans. Oh, right. okay. He's going to set them on fire. <laughs> there will be fire. There will be fire. But there can so, be blood right. and fire. Come on. When I go down, I go down in flames. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anatole de Blair. He was one of Louis' five children and only one of two who survived uh, childhood. There was the sister as well that, that I mentioned earlier that had been married. And Anatole, again, was born in 1863. He actually started his career not at the guillotine. He started it in a department store working for a tailor uh, in sales in Paris at age 12. I think all of us who work public service have felt the urge to kill. Yes. (laughs) So according to a newsreel from the 1930s, that's the one that I mentioned that'll be in the show notes and maybe we'll, we'll try to throw that up on the social media. Uh, Anatole really tried to avoid going into the family business to the extent that, uh, he joined the military from 1882 to 1885, even though if you were in an executioner's family, you were exempt from military service. You didn't have to serve. But the family business also caused a problem there. He got a lot of shunning and a lot of, of bullying, so he, he quit the military. At some point, I don't know if it was before or after that, but his father sent him to work as an assistant executioner alongside his maternal grandfather in Algeria, which was one of the few exceptions to that whole law of the one executioner for all of France deal. So then in 1890, Louis set Anatole up as his own second class assistant. At that point, Anatole would have been 27. But there are stories that Anatole attended his first execution at age 18 and helped Louis out with executions as early as age 24. So it seems like Anatole went back and forth a little bit because uh, the, the ages lining up there, it seems like he maybe went to some executions, tried to have other careers, was brought back to it, tried to have other careers, you know, just back and forth until finally he was yanked in. And uh, Louis was probably a proud papa watching his son's first execution in 1891. And the thing is, is that this was, again, this was a public spectacle. This was a thing that people, it was an event. People came to see it and just like the theater and movies, uh, if, if it's a public event, the newspaper reviews it. Oh, my so, God. I can't wait yeah. to hear the reviews. Four and a half out of five. Great job. It was a pretty good review. Yeah. The review came out the next day. Young Mr. De Blair demonstrated a confident flick of the wrist and the ease of an experienced practitioner. After this happy trial, we can foresee and wish him a good career and a number of respectable performances. Jesus Christ, that's fucking dark. It's like he's an actor. It's it's very dark because if you didn't know we were talking about an executioner, you would think we were talking about something entirely different. Like a clown at a circus getting ready to fight a firefighter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So it's it's very... It's weird how they managed to cloak the grimness of the deed in all these mundane words. 
it, there's there's really nothing negative there aside from the word trial, but trial could just be, oh, we're going to give you a trial run and see how it goes. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. So yeah, it's very, it's very weird, the language here. And now there was a general procedure with guillotining that had developed over time. He would go from city to city with the guillotine locked in a long black wagon that would then hook up to the train. This was uh, called the wagon of death. And of course it was carrying the widow, which is what the guillotine was known as. Uh, she marries men just real quick for uh, two to five seconds. So, wow. <laughs> so, and then they would arrive in the town where the execution was to take place. They would set the guillotine up really quietly and try to avoid people catching on what was about to happen but the thing is, is that you're also pulling into town at the train station with the wagon of death. So probably shouldn't have written that on the side of the car. In neon lights. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it probably was pretty obvious. And also in Paris and probably a lot of the other cities he traveled to, if not most of them, there was a designated spot for the beheadings. It happened right in front of the prison. So if some people see some activity in front of the prisons, they could probably surmise that an execution is going to take place real soon. Another practice was to not inform the prisoner who was already condemned and knew that their death was going to come at some point, but didn't know that it was going to come until they were awakened early that morning. That'll Surprise! Make Surprise! Ugh. Wakey, wakey! <laughs> so what do you want for your meal? Why didn't you tell me it was my last meal? I would have had something a little bit better than a bowl of cereal. <laughs> I was... Shit. Fuck. I would have had some goddamn bacon, damn uh, it. Oh. Fucking steak. Uh, some wheat grain. <laughs> wheat grain, my ass. They do generally, uh, they did generally get a chance to have a drink and a smoke if they wanted before going to the guillotine. So a little bit of whiskey or brandy, something like that, glass of wine, whatever, and a, a smoke or two. So at least there was that. Uh, the executions would happen in the early morning, and that was prescribed by law. It was literally written into the law that the guillotines had to happen in the early morning. And But even no matter what lengths they tried to go to to hide this, by the time the criminal got out there, there would be a crowd. And, you know, we're not just talking about the, the peasants. You know, we're not just talking about the merchants. We're talking about artists, nobility. You know, everybody from society, from the bottom to the top, wanted to see these executions. They were, they were entertainment. Again, I say to you people, go read a damn book. Stop watching people die for fun. I mean, I'm not a morning person, but I probably would have at least gone once or twice. I probably would have been right beside you. Yeah. These are great seats, huh, Amber? <laughs> That's because we just stayed up drinking the night before. We haven't been to bed yet. That's the only way it's happening. Yeah. Accidentally. <laughs> we accidentally ended what? up in the middle of an execution. Whoa. I helped put that thing together. I thought we were putting together an entertainment center. And we were. <laughs> you guys would fit in so well in during these times in France and England because that was basically how it was. It would be the I bars would have been and stay open all night. Bitch. 
Yeah, no, yeah. I would have been burned as a witch so many times. I would have well, pooped true. out. I poop out the window now. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure Amber actually would have been the one burning the witches. My Ooh, neighbor knows what yeah. my butthole looks like. <laughs> oh God. So, but yeah, they would the, the 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 bars and taverns. They would stay open all night, and people would just drink all night, and then go to the execution the next day. Or you know, if you're a, a young family, you you bring your kids, and everybody watches. It was a big deal. There were, you know, if, if you had uh, an, a, an, a house or an, a, a, you know, an apartment or whatever, or a store with a good vantage point of the execution, that could be a source of extra income because you could sell tickets for spots for people to watch. Fucking hell. Fucking it was a, hell. It was a cottage industry. Yeah. It was the, the execution industrial complex. <laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, and then... They would take the wagon back to Paris where it would be washed. So it's not. Granted, you put the instrument of death back in the wagon. So probably the wagon isn't all bloody, but it still is pretty grim and gruesome to be like not wash it before you take it home. You know? Yeah, you don't want to leave blood in the streets, I guess. Yeah, well, according to the newsreel, he got uh, $200 a head. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's right there. I just, you know. And so, yeah, and then every, every, it wasn't just first executions. Every execution would get a review in the next issue of the local paper. I I kind of love it in a way because I love old newspapers and now I'm going to be digging through old French newspapers, trying to find execution reviews on days when I don't have enough to do. So, Good Lord. A new hobby and um, probably my weirdest. You so. know what? One thing that's never shouted at an execution is encore. Cause yeah. <laughs> so back on George- and do it again. <laughs> maybe at Georgette and Henri Thomas's. <laughs> maybe. Encore. Maybe there, but. Jesus. Show me your titties, Georgette. <laughs> so just hold the body up and shake it back and forth. <laughs> so Anatole married Rosalie Rogier in 1898. She was, again, the daughter of an executioner. They did have one son who died a few months after birth, but no other biological children. Uh, he brought two of Rosalie's brothers on as assistants. So again, continuing that family biz. And he also became a father figure to his nephew on Rosalie's side. So her, her nephew, that was Andre Obrecht. And he would end up becoming a executioner. Baker. <laughs> Baker. Baker. Talk show host. <laughs> Slash executioner. <laughs> so... He worked from 1922 to 1976 with a few years off here and there. And he would do a total of 302 total beheadings. So it's so ingrained in the family. It's really to the point of absurdity, I think. Now, Anatole's father wore a top hat to work, but Anatole preferred the hood. So. Yeah, he going <laughs> yeah. full medieval on that shit. There's a reason that the executioner's hood existed, and it was for anonymity purposes. I man, if I was an executioner, I top hat hood. Yeah, I'd go for the hood myself. But I, I, 
I'd like lift it up and go, hey, everybody, and pull it back down. Yelling out, hey, mom. (laughs) Scott's mom's dead. What the hell's wrong with him? Despite his attempts to remain anonymous, Anatole still gained some renown. And the crowds would yell, Viva de Blair, before an execution. One condemned prisoner even joined in with the cheer before his head was chopped off. So he's yelling, long live de Blair, before de Blair makes him not live long. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, it was said, I don't know how much I believe this one, but it was said that condemned prisoners would get tattoos referring to de Blair, like uh, a tattoo that said, my head to de Blair on their neck, or possibly uh, cut across the dotted line with a force, a dotted line on their neck. Again, not sure how much I believe those ones. Dark, dark humor. Dark humor. Dark. Very dark. But yeah. hey, gallows humor, but quite literally, but almost. Whatever doesn't get you through the day, I guess. <laughs> it's the French version of gallows humor, so it's guillotine humor. There it there is. There you go. Oh, he was quite a bit better than his father. He improved the structure and performance of the guillotine, did a little tuning up there, and made sure his goal was to make the execution as fast as possible. He was definitely a painstaking kind of man. Uh, one thing that makes him particularly notable is his notes. I didn't intend for that to happen, but it did. He kept detailed <laughs> notes. Uh, on those who passed through the prisons in his diaries, which totaled 2,000 pages. 2,000. Impressive. Yeah, that's a lot of writing. He would include their crimes. He would include information about the trials, which he would go to. He went to all the trials of those who might receive capital punishment. He wanted to see it from beginning to end and probably reassure himself that it was uh, at least, you know, according to the law, justified, I suppose. Probably helps you sleep at night. Uh, and he would also record the, their behavior at the execution, the date, location, and the weather. And if, as far as prisoners, we don't just have those who were executed in his diaries because he attended all those trials. So some people would be pardoned. And he would put a blue cross next to their names if an and if a judgment was overturned, he would cross out the entry. And for executions, he put a red cross with a black circle around it. He had some tales of prisoners in the lead up to the executions. For example, quote, after smoking a cigar and several cigarettes and consuming two glasses of cognac, he let himself be shackled with facility and walked with a firm step to the guillotine. There's also another one who passed on a glass of rum and said, no thanks, it's bad for my health. God damn it. Take the <laughs> rum. Now's the time Boy, to live rum. it up. I'm taking the rum right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she is. There it is. The, the thing that surprised me was that for as exciting as the job is, for a, how weird and exotic this job is, uh, he was boringly normal. <laughs> he was... He uh, he fished, played billiards, and I guess this was a, I guess this was just a thing that they did back then. He kept tortoises and canaries. Yeah, yeah, those were his pets, his tortoises and canaries. Um, so he would just do the job, go home, 
get all the icky stuff out in his journal, kind of like, you know, therapy, some sort of like purging, and then just be a, a ridiculously normal for the day dude in his off hours. And that was how he dealt with it. Just don't, he didn't take his work home except for the journals. That was it. That was the only way he took his work home. And then he got rid of it in the journals and then moved on with his, with his day. Lord knows I wouldn't take my job home. What'd you do last night? I did a little bit of practice with the kids and the wife. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> so, don't worry. I just tied him up. I just wanted to get my knots quicker. Yeah, yep, yeah. That was it. I know where my weak points are. <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing is, is, earlier on in his career, during the first decade or so of his uh, his run, and the very first decade of the 1900s, he actually didn't get very much practice. He didn't have uh, very many executions because the presidents that that were in power during that time period were sort of like anti-death penalty. So he founded a, another career for a little while, selling champagne. Cheers. Cheers to that, yeah. Uh, 17 point, glasses of this a day calms the screams. <laughs> once he uh, got got back into his, his old job... He did an out-of-the-country execution, so going international a little bit, in Belgium in 1918. They hadn't had an execution there for 55 years. Losers. But a guy killed his pregnant fiance, and shocking everyone, the king refused to commute the death sentence. So they had to bring someone in to perform the execution because they didn't do that there anymore. The king was just like, yeah, but just this once. Just just once, okay? Just just that dude. Then we'll Come no on. more, probably. Come Maybe. on. We'll see. Come on. Just one time. I want to see it. <laughs> Other visitors to Anatole's guillotine included an Italian anarchist who assassinated a French president, a Russian doctor who assassinated a French president. <laughs> it was a very popular thing to do. Very popular. Now, the thing with the Russian doctor was he had suffered a head injury in World War One and was dealing with severe mental illness as a result. So that one was pretty controversial. And one visitor to our very own podcast, Henri Desiree Landru, who we covered in episode 16. So if you haven't heard that one, go back and listen. Back in the early days. Back in the early days. It was before my time. Before Amber's time, yes. I realized <laughs> when we were talking about the possibility of doing uh, the show in person together again, once we're all safe to do so, I realized that, uh, Amber, your tenure as a, a co-host has been far longer over the, the, the webcam than it has been in person because you were from like January to March of 2020. And then next thing you knew... We were we were doing this from home, <laughs> and not it all make, at my home. It makes it easier for me to adapt. Ha! <laughs> so so you didn't get to experience the sweltering, horrifying heat of the the recording studio in the Never. summertime when Scott Never. and I would walk out soaked, drenched in sweat from head to toe. Literally making my own gravy. It <laughs> was horrifying. So we might do this in the living room when we do it so as to not 
you know, that's a much bigger space. And so that we're not, and it closed up in such a, you know, smaller space, it basically it breathing each other's air for two hours. So I actually, I just found out that the only time my husband listens to the podcast is when we were streaming live on Twitch, when we were actually doing it in person. It's the only time he's ever listened. And um, he only listened so he could watch to see how much I was drinking. Oh my God. That's- and I was like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I'm going to try to block him from Twitch so he just can't get on. <laughs> yes, that's right. We'll be back on Twitch, too. I'm going to have to not wear pajamas. Oh, my God. Anyhow, I am looking forward to being in person again, and I'm sure the listeners will, will enjoy that, pants? too. Real pants? Real pants? I don't know. I might stay with some form of hard or, or soft pants rather than the hard pants. What are pants? Yeah, that's your question. So. But anyhow, that's that's podcast business, and uh, you got to get a little peek into into our <laughs> worlds there. As we've been, I've been really looking forward to in person being in person again for a while, and uh, yeah. So Jackson was actually really excited, Amber, when you you showed us that you had signed up for your vaccine. He was, I think he's excited for us to be in person again too. <laughs> we just want to be around people. <laughs> so, so back to Anatole de Blair. Uh, executions, as I said, they were public until 1939. And it was actually, it wasn't just the practice. This was, again, something that was enshrined in national law. It was law that the people had to be able to go to the execution and see it being performed. Now, it seems like the law revoking this requirement, so no more public executions, have coincided with somebody getting some video of the an actual execution. Going to YouTube now. <clears throat> <laughs> and it was like, well, maybe we won't do this anymore. They they do say that it is still in circulation somewhere. If anywhere, it would be on YouTube. So yeah. Um, after forty years as chief executioner, Anatole de Blair didn't even really get to retire. He died en route to an execution that was planned for the next day. He was at the metro station on February 2nd, 1939 in Paris, and he had a heart attack and would go on to be taken to the hospital where he died. He was the longest-running executor en chef des criminels in the 110 years since the institution of the office to the end of the death penalty in France. He performed 299 total beheadings in the position of chief executioner and just under 100 prior to that as assistant, so closing in on 400 total. Loser couldn't get the 400, noob. (laughs) (laughs) His immediate successor was Jules-Henri Desrourneaux, who was married to Anatole's wife's niece. So technically Anatole's niece, because, you know, like, that's how it works with marriage. And uh, Desjournaux would be the one who performed the last public execution before they made it so that they weren't public anymore. You want to give people the date on that? Oh, I'm sorry. Not the last public execution, but the last guillotine execution in France. Yes, that was 1977, the same year that Star Wars A New Hope was released. Good Lord, right? (laughs) Yes. Star Wars is in the theaters and people are still being executed by guillotine. That's hilarious. Yes, Yes. the guillotine was in use until 
1977. And if you'll give me one moment, I also want to transpose this. Like, I want to mix in some other things that happened in 1977. Fucking Luke's waving around a lightsaber. <laughs> like, do you think the guy's last thing? I'd like to see Star Wars before I die. Yeah, like, spare, spare me the rum. Let me go see a movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the Hot 100 singles uh, of 1977 were Rod Stewart, Tonight's the Night, Andy Gibb, I Just Want to Be Your Everything, The Emotions, Best of My Love, and Barbara Streisand, Evergreen, Theme from A Star is Born. How would you get that woman's nose through the execution hole? <laughs> Gosh. Face down. Yeah, yeah. Uh other movies that were popular in 1977 that were released, Eraserhead, Saturday Night Fever, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, The Hobbit, a cartoon apparently, and, and Slapshot. I had The Hobbit, a cartoon on VHS. Yeah, I, I've, watched, I've watched the animated Lord of the Rings films whenever I was trying. I, I tried, people. Okay, I just don't like that story. Um, my sister gave us the box set of the, the full Lord of the Rings, the one that was out, not the cartoon, the one that was out you know, more recently, many years ago. And it took us, I think, maybe five to eight years to finally sit down and watch the whole thing. It's just such a time commitment. It's, it's such a time it commitment. It is a commitment. It's fucking boring is what it is. We, it, we enjoyed the movies, but it took us an entire weekend, if not two weekends. It might have taken us more than one weekend. I can't remember. But yeah, that was a long thing. So uh, those are some things that happened. And Slapshot, by the way, for those of you who don't know, uh, we live in Johnstown. And uh, it was based on the Johnstown hockey team. And much of it was filmed right here in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So a movie that is very close to our hearts. And um has some boobs if you like those. So, and Paul Newman if you like that. Which also, who doesn't? Does it have Paul Newman's boobs? Big old floppy man titties. <laughs> I, I'm sure that he has his shirt off at some point. So, I, yeah, like I'm thinking it. it does have his boobs in there it. There we go. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, slather them with spaghetti sauce and go to town. So yes, the guillotine was spaghetti in sauce. Why not Newman's own dressing? <laughs> well, that's what I was. Doesn't Paul Newman make spaghetti sauce too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it makes all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, yes, the guillotine was in use until St Star Wars. I don't even... I'm, I'm lost. I'm, I'm just... I'm on autopilot at this point. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. Scott and I just think we're hilarious. Yeah, I, just, that's I blanked out. I, I think I, I had a momentary fugue for a minute there where I was just in another place entirely and my brain was just completely blank. I think they're called mini strokes. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That. We locked eyes over like the video chat, and both of us just lost it. <laughs> I think is all that happened there. So, the guillotine was in use until the first Star Wars movie was released, and France abolished the death penalty altogether in 1981. So we can slam on them all we want for them continuing to use the guillotine, which I think it was used more and more sparingly as the years went on until 1977 and then they were like well we may as well just stop we're barely using the thing anyhow but they at least abolished the death penalty in 1981 we're one of like two like first world countries that still has the, the death penalty we are considered fairly regressive in that respect yeah well fairly regressive Not in every respect one. yeah yeah socialized <laughs> health care 
In a couple uh, respects. Immigration. Basic but human mo- rights. <laughs> but most of us have smartphones, so there's that. There's that. Again, yeah, I, I just keep on thinking, like, the past year or so, actually, it's, it's popped into my head a lot. Uh, the Ani the DeFranco quote, take away our PlayStations and we are a third world nation. nation. <laughs> yep, it just keeps on popping into my head. I don't Me know why. Me <laughs> So Anna told the Blair's diaries were sold in 2003. They fetched about 85,000 euros, which is 132,000 in American dollars today. And um, there's a book that was uh, compiled by Eric Guillon, who is a crime history expert. He combines some of the best diary info from de Blair's journals with mugshots from the Paris police archives. So, you know, you'd get de Blair's thoughts on the particular criminal and everything associated with them and the execution. And then you'd get their mugshot as well. And so he combined that into the book Guillotine Le Nopo de Torture de Blair. And yes, the word torturer is in there. So now that is what I have on de Blair. I do have one sort of fun fact section that ended up being far less fun that I'm going to get into that is almost entirely unrelated. It's about another executioner who only performed two of them. But before I go into that, do you guys have anything else on de Blair or his father or grandfather as I ended up branching into? The, the only thing I have to add here is I'm on vice.com right now, and it has, it has stunned me how many pictures there are after the execution. I've never seen so many severed heads in all my there life. There are some very rough, yeah. graphic photos. Yeah, I mm. saw that when I was doing my research. I'm like, I'm shocked at how many severed heads are in these articles. Like, right? It was a pleasant surprise. There, yeah, there's there <laughs> is this there is this one photo of Albert Fournier. Uh, I'm sure you're going. Will you put it up on social media? Fuck no, I won't. Um, <laughs> And not not you know any. It's, bad it's, if you want. it's not anything like my taste. I want to, but Christy would hurt me if I did. <laughs> it is of Albert Fournier, and like I always thought, oh, the guillotine, kind of a kind of a sharp implement. No, his neck's kind of ragged looking. Yeah. Yeah, that was, and the fact that I can see that his neck is ragged looking. Kind of makes me regret eating pasta earlier. <laughs> but that's uh, that's pretty much all I have. Gomez Adams looking motherfucker. Amber, anything else? Nope, I'm good. Okay, so I seem to have lost my page seven of my notes. So hang on a second because I'm just going to... I'm just going to write down gonna... here to edit this out. We are recording at... I mean, it's okay. It's only going to take me a second to get down here. Um, But, uh, you know. So, uh, my fun facts involve another executioner, as I said. And that was the sheriff of Erie County, New York, in the 1870s. He was newly elected. He'd been a lawyer prior to that. Was known to be very studious and methodical, even puritanical. And he was around 35 when he became sheriff. Now, normally up until that point, for the prior administration or a couple more, 
the deputy sheriff did the executions, which were hangings at that point in time, of course, even though the law of the area sort of implied that it was the sheriff's duty. So the deputy had been having, kind of like in France, some social issues due to being the local hangman to the point that people were using hangman as his first name. They were calling him, I think his last name was Merrick or something like that. They were calling him Hangman Merrick. And there was also a big case that came along that ended in a death sentence and was getting some local media attention. And that was unpleasant for him. So the new sheriff kind of looked at this whole situation, both the law that said he was supposed to do this and the deputy sheriff who was suffering. And he said, this is part of my job, not yours. And... I don't have the right to give you what he called the, quote, obnoxious and degrading tasks attached to the office, end quote. So the new sheriff took over as hangman. He uh, had his first execution during which he stood behind a screen and pushed the lever that would actually drop the you know, floor and hang the condemned. Afterwards, he was sick for several days. It was rough on him. There was an article that said he was not so stolid and phlegmatic as very many persons have been led to believe. He executed that man and one other during his term. They were, the executions were about five months apart. But really, honestly, I mean, yes, it's good that he stepped up and did this. But the sheriff goddamn well better do all the parts of his job in this county since he makes 20000 a year, and that is an old-timey money, people. Anyone want to guess what 20000 a year comes to from the 1870s in 2021 money? I'm going to say 420000 a year. I'm going to say 120000 Actually, Scott gets it. It comes Damn. to 444000 today. Yeah. And it was a two-year term. So that would net him nearly 900000 You practically become a millionaire from being the sheriff. Damn. I'll, I'll fucking kill all the people you want legally for half a million dollars a year. <laughs> um, so this person... Uh, I will give you a quote before I tell you who he was. And actually, I'll take some guesses after I give you one more fairly big hint that will narrow it down a little bit. Uh, a quote from him is, No man has ever yet been hanged for breaking the spirit of the law. And he was, after he was a sheriff and an executioner, went on to occupy the White House as a president. Any guesses as to which U.S. president was also a hangman? Donald Trump. <laughs> Probably some 13-year-olds, but yeah, allegedly, maybe. Make this all go away. <laughs> I'm bad at presidents. Um... So is Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, God. Lost a okay, couple but... listeners there, sorry. But I... I do want like real like of, of the time period or at least close to it or something. Older presidents, the ones we definitely know weren't presidents the last four years. Give me the year again. Well, he was, I'm not going to give you the year he was president because oh. honestly, I don't know for sure. But he, his, his tenure as a sheriff was in the 1870s and he rose to be a president within probably, I think, the next decade or so. Okay. I'm bad at president. I'm going to go Adams. Grant. Grover Cleveland. <laughs> Imagine being executed by a man named Grover. 
It was <laughs> no. before Sesame Street. That's true. Okay, so his presidential terms, he had two of them, 1885 to 1889 and 1893 to 1897. So Now, the thing about this is, um, I did this research into him, and then I looked at a couple quotes, and then I did a little bit of more research, and I really started to hate Grover Cleveland. <laughs> I have a new person that I hate more than anyone in the world that is living or dead, and that is Grover Cleveland. Wow. Uh, I gave you the quote about no man has ever yet been hanged for breaking the spirit of the law. Well, here's another quote from him. Sensible and responsible women do not want to vote. The relative positions to be assumed by man and woman in the working out of our civilization were assigned long ago than a higher intelligence than ours. And I say he can fuck right off with that. He also married a 21-year-old while in office. He was 48. Yuck. Uh, she was the daughter of his deceased best friend. Yuck. They'd been courting since she was a teenager. And he had guardianship over her. Oh, no. That's some Led Zeppelin that's bullshit. Fucking gross. Ugh. I will top that shit Sunday with a shit cherry. That is the fact that she called him Uncle Cleve. So That's he weird because I call Ariana Aunt Cleavage. <laughs> so Grover Cleveland can fuck right off with that shit. Also, also, he was accused of rape by a widow who, as soon as this accusation came out, he had her tossed into an institution. They had a child together whom he had removed from her custody and sent to his friends to raise. Luckily, as far as the, the woman was concerned, the sanitarium was like, she's she's definitely not supposed to be here. She's fine. It was like a couple of days and they were like, you can go home now. It's fine. So they let her out. But um, as to all that, I would like to say that Grover Cleveland can fuck right the fuck off. I agree. That, yes, I thought you would. And that Fuck you, Grover. Fuck you, Grover. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you start off researching a family of French executioners and end up hating Grover Cleveland. There you go. That's how it happens. <laughs> I was actually looking at the list of executioners on Wikipedia, and it just caught my eye. Like, I was just looking up one of the other executioners. I was like, what the fuck? Grover Cleveland. Grover, Grover Cleveland, who I didn't hate until about an hour later when I really hated him. <laughs> and I still do. So, that is the de Blair family, Joseph, Louis, and Anatole, as well as that asshole Grover Cleveland. So, scum of humanity. Uh, we have a patron shout out. Welcome to the Patreon verb. It's hard to sing. It's just one syllable. So it's, But I, I did my best. And I uh, hope you're enjoying all the material there, as other people should be going and enjoying as well. Don't forget about our merch, oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. We have t-shirts, we have laptop covers, we have uh, stickers. We have all kinds of stuff that you can get there and enjoy. And uh, I'm probably going to be adding some new stuff, possibly a Fuck Grover Cleveland shirt. I don't know, that could be fun. <laughs> so, and I just feel like maybe the process of making it could kind of... Uh, Kind of purge some of this this righteous fury I have going on, sort of like Anna told the Blair and his diaries. It'll be cathartic. 
cathartic. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Some catharsis is needed. Some some Cleveland catharsis. So Grove catharsis. That's definitely a sex act. Um. That's what, well, a Grover is a sex act. That's whenever you yeah. put you put your hand up the rear of the person and make them say what you want them to say. <laughs> oh God. So yeah. Until they and turn blue. Don't forget to come over and see what what Scott's putting up on the social media. Hopefully as few severed heads as possible. Uh, we are Old Timey Crimey on Facebook and Twitter. And if you're not the Patreon type, that's cool. We would love to give you a shout out on the show or shout out on your birthday, maybe. If you just uh, send us a donation to a PayPal via our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. If you have any cases in particular that you want to see us pick apart and Scott make fun of and Amber probably set fire to something, you can use that very same email address to let us know. We would love to hear from you. I'm, again, always sure that I have more bullshit. Oh, rate, review, subscribe. You know that. Tell a friend. Honestly, seriously. Tell a friend. You can share this love for old-timey crimey that you have with your friends. And it will be a bonding moment. And you'll always look back on that moment in your relationship when you were like, God, isn't old-timey crimey awesome? What the hell's wrong with that guy? (laughs) (laughs) He's... He's, he's, no, he's, there's, there's some trauma in that guy's past. (laughs) Why does that one lady like fire so much? (laughs) The look Amber just gave me. (laughs) I swear to God, I could have heard her. I think I heard her say in the background, yelling at her kids, fire is your new God now. And I will show you best how to worship it. (laughs) (laughs) For me, they'd be like, why does that one lady like old newspapers so much? For sure, New like definitely. They are great, though. Mm-hmm. They are great. I love them. For starting fires. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew. I should have known. I should have known. So. <laughs> that is my bullshit, and uh, uh, I'm gonna try to finish this off with. I forgot last week, but I'm gonna remember this week. A um. Oh, here's a good one. Uh, newspaper. Article, speaking of which, completely unrelated to this, except for there's some some presidents involved here. So this is from uh, a newspaper in a date. I didn't write the date in the file name like I usually do. Oops. A remarkable woman of 70 was Mrs. Margaret Ashton of Montrose, New York. Her fad was attending funerals, and she had been to 600 in her life, having been present at the burial of every person but three who died in that part of her own and adjoining counties during the last 40 years. She appropriately dropped dead the other day as the body of a neighbor was being lowered into the grave. Besides being present at so many local funerals, she had been among the spectators at the obsequies of all the noted people of this country who have died in the last half century, including Daniel Webster, Abraham Lincoln, Horace Greeley, General Grant, President Garfield, and Stephen A. Douglas. She was president present sorry, she was prevented from being present at President Arthur's funeral by the death of a relative who was buried the same day. Superstitious people may attribute her unpleasant taking off and its cause to the fact that she had 13 children, of whom one survives her. So you thought our hobbies were born of trauma and weird? (laughs) That's... That's, uh, I'll, I'll shine a light over to, to that lady because uh, she definitely, I like to think of her closet 
and it just being all black, like super goth, but old lady goth. So, so yeah, what are we doing this week, guys? Uh, I am, uh, I'm proud to announce that the nonprofit that I helped start did its first donation. We donated $420 to the Lorraine Borough uh, and Stony Creek Trail uh, organization. Uh, they had, unfortunately, a case of vandalism, and they were nice enough not, not to prosecute the teenagers that, that turned themselves in, uh, but they wanted some trail cameras that had like a live feed so that if something happens, they can see it happen live, get down there and stop it. And, and so uh, the group that I started, uh, an environmental group called Sphere Solutions, we donated $420 to them and got them the trail cameras that they needed. Awesome. That is fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Very pleased. Very pleased. It was the best thing I did all week. Amber, how about you? I am um, starting my new classes to get smarter and stuff. So uh, that starts this week. And I'm actually really, really, like, oddly excited to go back to school again. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. I was I was super excited when I was going back for my, my master's. I mean, like, it, it's just education and learning. There's, I think there's a reason that we do this, what we do every week on, on the podcast. It, what are we doing every week? We're learning about a thing we didn't know about before or didn't have all the details on before. There's there's a reason we gravitate towards that. So I think it's natural that you would be excited about going back to school and, and learning some other new stuff that's not necessarily about bloody, gory death. Because even though it's not about bloody gory death, it's still within your realm of interest. So, well, yeah, because I really want to learn how. Um, I think after this, I'm going to take your husband's class, um, and then if I ever get fired, I'm going to hack the system and bring it down. <laughs> See, he taught ethical hacking. I'm pretty sure what you're referring to is unethical hacking, like the definition. Oh, but yeah, that's okay. no, I know, but I mean, I'll learn the ethical and figure out the unethical. Right? Yes, you will. That's pretty much your entire like raison d'etre of learning anything. I'll learn the right thing, and then I'll make it wrong. Mm. Yeah, I mean, knowledge is power. Power to destroy. And power <laughs> corrupts. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, this week, uh, there's a, a little secret project we haven't mentioned for a while, and it's been a little, little slow going, but I have a little extra time this week, so I'm going to be spending some time getting uh, trying to get that started and going into motion so that when when Amber's finally done with school <laughs> we can we can work a little bit more on it together but I'm trying to get the the base materials there so that yeah all you guys have to do is uh, go off and do some research and compiling so yeah again I'm not telling you what the secret project is it's not something I'm going to mention often and and rub our listeners noses in the fact that they don't know what it is yet I just have this I have thing a that secret. yeah <laughs> neener, neener. I just have this Thing that the more people you share an idea with, the less shiny it gets. Uh, I don't know if that's actually true, but it's how I feel. So that's why I'm keeping it a secret and only mentioning it, mentioning it occasionally when it comes up, which this week it will be will be coming up. So yeah, so that's what I'm doing. Listeners, and uh, listeners, please, if you are in the Johnstown area, go grab yourself a copy of Johnstown Magazine. There's some delightful articles in there about us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll want to grab the March issue. I think this particular episode will be coming out in April, but I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, they, most places that have Johnstown Magazine, they keep 
the previous issues. So if the April issue is facing you, just go a little bit further back in the pile and you'll probably find the March issue. So yes, we are in the Johnstown Magazine. I forgot to mention that. Yes, thank you for bringing that up, Scott. Not problem. They did uh, an interview with us uh, talking about old-timey crimey and also talking about uh, my other podcast, Detectives by the Decade. So it was definitely very interesting and, and fun to be a part of that. So And a thank you to Katrina... Her last name is Perkowski. Am I right about that? Petrosky. Is it, is it Petrosky Perk, or Perkowski? Like, like percolated coffee. Perkowski. Okay. That was, that was what I went with the first time. I knew somebody named Pe Petrosky years ago. So my brain wants to place that name on hers, which is incorrect. So thank you to Katrina Perkowski for doing that uh, interview with us. And we very much appreciated, uh, you know, that exposure. So yeah, that is uh, that is us for this week. That is Anatole de Blair, his family, and I hate Grover Cleveland. So thank you for listening to our filthy words. Uh, oh, and by the way, that twenty-one-year-old that he married at forty-eight, who was uh, his, you know, all that yucky stuff. That was the first wedding that ever took place in the White House. So there you go. Eric. There you go. Just some more yuck for you. So thank you for listening to our filthy words. We will be back next week with more historical true crime. And bye. 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 My sources this week are plentiful. The Antiques Trade Gazette, Wikipedia, Chris Woodyard, Haunted Ohio Books, The Guillotine on Capital Punishment UK, New York Times, Executed Today, Wikipedia again, uh, The Guillotine Headquarters, Murderpedia, Strange Ago, Pierre Longueray on Vice, Reuters, the March of Time newsreel on YouTube, and Le Veuve Guillotine. Yeah, she just did it because it's French. My sources are <laughs> wikipedia.org, vice.com, executedtoday.com, antiquestradergazette.com, and gwgenier.org. See, I can do it too! <laughs> Uh, my sources this week, again, Matt Scott. I think we're the same person sometimes. Uh, Wikipedia.org, Vice.com by Pierre Longare, ExecutedToday.com, AntiquesTradeGazette.com, and StrangeAgo.com.